We're entering the time of year that we all know is the most wonderful time of the year. Can you even imagine that we're talking about the holiday season? The most wonderful time of the year. So I say to you from the onset, suck it up and let it be wonderful. Some have already started complaining. Some have already started to feel the stresses and the strains. And I'm very much aware that this season can be stressful. People just like you and people like me are often busier now than at any other time of the year trying to balance work and personal obligations, and that leads to more stress. Financially stressful, there's no doubt about that. Most of the gifts you wanted to give are on a container ship somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. So you're having to pivot and find something else last minute. Inevitably, you're going to spend more money, and that's stressful. While holidays are supposed to be a time of joy and expectations for perfection are raised, for whatever reason, we begin to assess ourselves when we enter seasons such as this. We compare our lives to the lives of those around us. We feel the constraints. We feel the pressure. We get bent. We get twisted just a little bit. And I know that in seasons such as this one, when it's wonderful for others, there is a segment of the population that is reminded oftentimes of loss. And it's painful. And in fact, it's magnified in seasons like this. Perhaps we look back at a moment like this and we've got to figure out a divided Thanksgiving or a divided Christmas. Maybe we're looking and we're thinking about travel plans and going back home reminds us of the home environment that we grew up in. Perhaps there are regrets. No doubt there is guilt. I know that one of the names in the scripture for our adversary, the devil, is the accuser of the brethren. And perhaps one of the greatest tools that the accuser of the brethren, our adversary, the devil, has is the hammer of guilt. And he will use it to beat us down and to remind us over and again, and perhaps more than ever in seasons such as this one, about loss or past sin, or failure, or missed opportunities. And I want to take some time in the coming weeks to go to the Scripture and be reminded that the Bible helps us in every area of our lives. In no area is the Bible silent, and it can help us to be resilient. In fact, to simply define that, to recoil or spring back into shape after bending, stretching, or being compressed. And so I know in the myriad of emotions and situations that we will enter into, this is the way to navigate through. And I'm taking you to a passage of Scripture this morning in Judges chapter 16, and we're going to dive into the middle of what I think is a tragic story. Even in the turn that we'll arrive at as we conclude chapter 16, we'll sense sadness. We'll be aware of loss will stare potential wasted straight in the face. But we will also be reminded that no matter what failure is in our past, God's grace is sufficient for us. Samson is an exceptional character in the Bible. Exceptional in that he stands out singularly. He is unique. 
He's one of the judges of the nation of Israel. There was a period in the nation of Israel where there was no king. Every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. And in order to defend against enemies, God would raise up judges within the nation. And for a chapter or for a passage or for a period of time, however you want to look at it, they would be God's individual against the enemy. Samson was spectacular in that regard. But when we arrive here in chapter 16, in the verse that I read, we're going to find Samson as a worn-out, washed-up warrior. He's defeated, he's grinding in a prison, and I want to begin reading in verse 23, and look there with me, I'll read now, and we'll pick this up with him in prison. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God. Now, the Philistines are pagan people. They worship Dagon. He is their God. Now, we'll read on. And to rejoice, because this is what they were saying. Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. So just enter into this scene. We're having a chaotic, riotous party with thousands of people at the temple of Dagon. Samson has been overcome. Samson is now imprisoned. And the Philistines are rejoicing and they are giving credit to Dagon, their false god, over the God of Israel, the true God. And every time they see Samson, they are reminded in their minds of the greatness of Dagon, their God. And now in the midst of this exaltation and party in verse 25, and it came to pass when their hearts were merry, that they said, call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house. And he made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. Now this is a drunken, chaotic, riotous scene. This is part of their pagan ritual. This is part of their worship. Now Samson has been brought up. He's led by a little boy up to this temple where this party is happening. And they are making fun of Samson. They are mocking Samson. They are jeering Samson. And they are crediting Dagon, their God, over the God of Israel. What might have been this spectacular potential that was all wrapped up in Samson, this singular, unique individual within the pages of Scripture is now standing bound and blinded between two pillars at Dagon's temple being made fun of. And in verse 26, Samson said unto the lad, to the little boy that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women. And all the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, and here's an important phrase, O Lord God, remember me. I pray thee and strengthen me, I pray thee. Only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of our Philistine, of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson is going to outline for us the way to overcome failure. How can we bounce back into shape? How can we recoil to our old shape when we have experienced such overwhelming failure? 
Samson was supposed to save his people from the Philistines. That was his calling. Ultimately, he'll do that. I think his story is proof positive that with God on our side, all things are possible. I think his story is proof positive that even when defeat appears imminent, God can still redeem. God still has the capacity to restore. But when I study the life of Samson, I wonder why did no one ever pull him aside and put him in check? Why did no one ever pull him aside and offer a reality check to him, lovingly telling him about himself, trying to straighten out his petulant behavior? Without that, Samson is now living with the imagination that there are no consequences for anything, that he can do whatever he wants. In fact, I referenced a moment ago, the very theme of the book of Judges is wrapped up in one verse, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There are two ways to navigate life. We go through life and we follow divine direction. We align ourselves with the principles of Scripture. We obey the Lord God. We seek for wisdom and guidance and help from the Holy Spirit. And we navigate life in that way. Or we go with our gut. We pursue our passion. We satiate our desires at every turn. Those are two ways to go through life. And here in the book of Judges, we're told there was no leadership in Israel. And every individual person was navigating life by doing that which seemed right to them. With that which was right in their own eyes, it's a terrible way to go through life. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, talks to us about this. In his assembly of Proverbs, he says over and again in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. He'll come back and he'll say this in Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. He'll come back 23 verses after that when he'll repeat what he said earlier. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Solomon, I'm sorry, Solomon is teaching us about Samson's great weakness. Samson went through life doing whatever it was that he wanted to do. In fact, in chapter 16, we read something that stands out when we're talking about a man of God. Samson is a judge of God. We have expectations for his behavior. And in 16 and verse 1, here's what we read. Then went Samson to Gaza and saw there an harlot and went in unto her. Samson did not end up in a Philistine jail overnight. Samson ended up in a Philistine jail with his eyes gouged out, a washed up warrior, because of his pattern of behavior over the course of his life. Back in chapter 14, we are introduced to Samson, who, who took a Nazarite vow. From the womb, he had a Nazarite vow. Now, what in the world is a Nazarite vow? Three things were expected of someone who had taken the Nazarite vow. Thing number one, you will not touch any unclean thing. Nothing that is dead, nothing that according to the law is considered unclean. You would not ever imbibe any strong drink. And no razor could ever touch your head. Your hair had to grow and grow and grow. Samson was born with this expectation on his life. The word sanctified means set apart for God. Very clearly, Samson has been set apart for God's use for his entire life. The outward sign of his set apart, sanctified condition, his calling, was the Nazarite vow. 
Now, his strength is not wrapped up in the fact that he never imbibed strong drink, that he never touched an unclean thing, or that his hair was never cut. His strength was wrapped up in the fact that God always blesses obedience to his expectation and mandates. And Samson is going through life. Now, the Bible tells us in Judges chapter 14 that Samson falls in love. And Samson on his journeys through the countryside, encounters a lion. And the lion comes out against Samson. And the Bible tells us very clearly that Samson, with his bare hands, ripped this lion apart. And this really doesn't help me. But the Bible says that he tore it apart like it was a baby goat. You say, why doesn't that help you? Because I'm pretty sure that a baby goat could take me. So when you say, I mean, he did to the lion what you would do to a baby goat, I'm like, I'm not even getting near a baby goat. Have you ever seen them butt with their head? I don't feel like I could rend a baby goat. I don't think I want to do that. I'm pretty sure it would bite me, headbutt me, and I'd get out of its way. But Samson destroys this lion, shreds its carcass, leaves it on the side of the road. Samson is traveling. He comes back past this carcass. Now, some time has passed. I want you to realize what I have realized. At no point would I ever think like Samson thinks. Samson sees the carcass on the side of the road. Now, if it were me, I see a carcass on the road. I pass by on the other side of the road. But he notices something. In the carcass of this dead lion, some bees have made a nest. Another warning sign. Cross the road. There are bees in a dead lion. Dead body, bees, don't go over there. Not Samson. Samson goes and he sees that there is honey in the carcass of the dead lion. And Samson reaches into the carcass of the dead lion and he gets honey. I don't know how he avoided bee stings. I don't know how he put up with the smell. But he takes the honey, he eats the honey, he likes the honey, he takes the honey to his parents. They eat the honey and he doesn't tell them where it comes from. Now what we know as students of the Bible is he has just defied the mandate and the expectation of God because he has touched an unclean thing. But if we went to Samson and we said, time out, Samson, quick question. Why, of all things, did you take the honey from the carcass of the lion? I believe his answer would be simply this. Because I wanted to. Like a child, right? Because I wanted to. Well, Samson, do you not comprehend that in that moment you defied the order of God by touching that unclean thing? I don't really care about the order of God because in that moment, I wanted honey, I saw honey, I took the honey. Now, Samson is a petulant, behaving individual. He marries this woman and 30 of her friends that we know of arrive at the wedding feast and Samson, being Samson and arrogant in his behavior, says, I'll tell you a riddle. If you can't solve my riddle, then you will all give me a change of clothes. But if I and you solve my riddle, I'll give you a change of clothes. And this woman sets a pattern in Samson's life. It's a terrible pattern because she begins to say to him, you don't love me, Samson. If you really loved me, you would tell me the secret of the riddle because all of these people who have come to the wedding feast, they're pressing me and they're saying that you're teasing them and you're playing with their emotions. Please tell me the answer to the riddle. He finally capitulates and tells her the answer to the riddle. These men come back to him and they say, we have solved your riddle and they tell him the answer and he has one of those answers back that is so strong in the King James. He says in effect, not in effect, he says explicitly, you would have never solved my riddle if you weren't plowing with my heifer. 
Now that's supposed to be humorous because this is a woman that he loves, his new wife, and he says, you never would have solved my riddle if you weren't plowing with my heifer. They didn't think it was funny in the 945 service either. <laughs> Calling women heifers unpopular. <laughs> Take a second and write that down. <laughs> Don't use that again. Duly noted. Samson now has to come up with 30 changes of garments for these guys because they solved his riddle. So Samson being Samson, he doesn't shop around. He goes to a Philistine village. He finds 30 men, murders them, kills them outright, takes their clothes, brings them back, pays off his debt. This is how Samson goes through life. Samson, why did you touch the honey in the carcass? Wanted to. Samson, why did you go and marry this woman who was outside of your belief system? I wanted to. Why did you tell these guys a riddle and then tell her the answer? to? I wanted to. I just wanted to. This is what I wanted to do. All of his life is an unchecked story of him giving in and giving in and giving in to whatever he wants. In verse 1 of chapter 16, I think we stumble on it again. It simply says that he saw there a harlot and he went in under her. Now let's just stop and be students of the Bible. Let the Bible give us what it gives us so that we can learn from it. Every man did that which was right in their own eyes. And in chapter 16, verse 1, he saw a harlot, again, an indication of his eyes, and he went in under her, and we understand what's being communicated there. Now, if we went to Samson and we said, time out. This is immoral behavior, Samson. You can't do this, Samson. He would look at us if we asked him and said, why did you go in under the harlot? And he would say, because I wanted to. Because I wanted to. I wanted to. My body wanted to. So I did. All of his life is lived like this. Now, I don't think that the wife of 14 and the harlot of 16.1 and Delilah are the only women in Samson's life. I think this was a pattern because at one point you hear an exasperation. His parents say to him, is there never a woman in our own country? Is there never a woman? Is it always an outside pagan worshiping woman that you must go to? Yeah, it's what I want. She pleases me well. That's what he says. I like her. It's what I want. Don't hold me accountable. Don't tell me about consequences. Don't make me do something that I don't want to do. And by the time we arrive in Judges 16 and verse 4, we meet Delilah. And it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, I always pause and I think to myself, isn't it stunning that this is the story we'll take to like children's church? Like, let's start with that bloodshed, violence, immorality. Let's teach the kids. Let's not start with the Gospels. Go to the Old Testament murder pages. There's a point in here. It's an amazing thing where you get a little insight into the psyche of Samson. You see what drives him. He, He carries gates away from a village. At another point, he is attacked. He's assaulted by Philistines, and he finds on the ground a jawbone from a donkey He picks up, it's a new jawbone, he picks up the jawbone from the donkey and he kills like a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. Okay, that's violent stuff. And we're in children's church like, hey, Delilah and Samson, this is a bad story. 
Now, we're not going to change it because we've already got all the images and the pictures in the children's books, but it's deep. He writes a poem to himself after killing the people with the jawbone of the donkey. You can go back and you can read it. He writes a poem to himself. Samson killed a thousand with the jaw. It's amazing. Then he has the audacity to look up at God after this incredible slaughter and he says, I'm so thirsty. God, do you really empower me to have victory like this? To have me sit here and die of thirst? And God miraculously gives him water. He is so completely driven by his own agenda. He is so completely dominated by his own passion and lust and ambition that he cannot see straight, which is why Solomon told us there is a way which seems right, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Every man... It's clean in his own eyes, but God weigheth the spirits. He really does watch and know everything. And here in chapter 16, Samson is now with Delilah, doing whatever he wants to do. This is what he wants now. And the Philistines come to Delilah. And if you ever want to know how dumb lust can make you, you're about to see it in chapter 16. They offer to pay her an exorbitant amount of money if she will simply betray Samson and find the secret source of his strength to turn him over to the Philistines so that they can overpower him and do exactly what they will do. And because this entire relationship is lust-based as it is, of course she's willing to betray Samson for this amount of money. She'll never have to work again. This is a great deal. And so she begins to lean on Samson. I need you to tell me your secret. I need to know. You must tell me. You don't love me if you don't tell me that of course he doesn't love you, Delilah. He doesn't love anybody but himself. But the pattern's already been established because back in chapter 14, she leans on him until he tells her the answer to the riddle and Delilah is going to lean on because Samson doesn't want to be impeded on any front. Don't pressure me. Don't don't make me accountable in any way. So he begins to toy with her. He's a petulant child. I'll tell you what it is. If you take new reeds, if you take brand new rope, and you bind me with brand new rope, I happen to think that there were times that as she bound him with new rope, Samson wasn't really asleep. He knows he's being bound up. She would then spring on him. The Philistines are upon thee, Samson, and he would stand up and he would bust the rope. At one point, the Bible very vividly tells us that the new rope that he was bound with came off him like if you held yarn over a fire. I mean, this guy was spectacular. I don't think he was Herculean looking. I don't think he looked like me, like you would expect me to carry out feats of strength. I don't, don't have this image in your mind. I think he looked ordinary, but God gave him spectacular strength. Delilah is pressing on him. He doesn't like pressure in any way. If you're going to keep pressuring me, eventually I'm going to tell you because I just hate any pressure. I just want what I want when I want. And what I want right now is you to leave me alone. He gets dangerously close because at one point he says to her, if you will take my hair, all of my hair, and you will weave it in a loom, then my strength will depart. Now I'm telling you, if I was a judge's coach, I am calling a quick timeout and I'm saying, Samson, don't run that play again. That was real close. Samson, you better check yourself for once in your life because that was really close. You actually talked about your hair. This wasn't about new reeds. This wasn't about new rope. You talked about your hair. Samson, don't do it. She leans on him. You don't love me. Why don't you love me? You don't love me. And finally, under pressure and duress, 
wanting nothing but peace, wanting nothing but his own way. All he wants to do is sleep. He tells her his heart, and she knows it. That's women's intuition, whatever it was, his body language, the way he said it. She knew this time he told me the truth. And so she went back to the Philistines and said to them, hey, I know this time I know. And they're looking at her like, this is, this, is, this is not a good pattern for you, Delilah. He's lying to you. No, this time he told me his heart. So she causes him to fall asleep on her lap, the Bible says. And as he sleeps, in comes a Philistine barber who shaves his head. And with his head shaved, she says to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And in chapter 16, verse 20, we read a really tragic verse. She said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awake out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. God's power was gone. And he didn't even know it. He had navigated life to such a degree that he could no longer discern when God's hand was not on him. His trust in life's journey had been so much in that the strength is always there and I'm never held accountable for anything that he just imagined it would always go on like it had always gone on and no problems would ever arise except this time he has no strength. And when the Philistines get close to him, when he used to swing his fist and two or three would go down, they stayed standing. And when they latched onto his arms, when he used to be able to throw them through the wall, they actually bound him. And the Bible tells us very explicitly, and I think this is important, that they gouged out his eyes and they took him down to the prison house and they made him like a beast of burden, grind out grain. Now let's just pause for a second because here's what we know about Samson. He lives in an era where every man did that which was right in their own eyes. We know that he told his parents I want her for she pleaseth me well. He was saying, she looks good to me. In 16.1, he saw the harlot and went in unto her. His eyes have been his downfall his entire existence. He has gone with his gut. He has done what he wanted to do. He has satiated his passion. He has chased down his ambitions and it's caught up to him. Because now he's a washed up, beaten down warrior who exists only to entertain his enemies. And when we got to verse 23, we saw this riotous, drunken, calamitous party at the temple of Dagon. And at a point in the party, they began to chant, we want Samson. We want Samson. And they send down to the prison house, which obviously wasn't very far, and a little boy takes this once mighty warrior by the hand. Samson who carried gates. Samson who slayed hundreds upon hundreds with a jawbone. Samson who took foxes and tied their tails together and burned down the crops of a village. Samson, mighty Samson, is holding the hand of a little boy and he walks to the temple and they stand him in a prominent place between the pillars and they laugh at him. And because of his testimony and because of his life and because of his unchecked passion, they begin to make fun of his God. Which, by the way, is a really dumb fight for the Philistines to pick. 
And they begin to praise Dagon, and they look at him, and they laugh, and they chant, and they jeer, and they mock. And Samson says, I believe, after a moment of capitulation down in the prison to the little boy, would you please allow me to just lean against this pillar for a second? Would you please allow me to lean on the other pillar for a second and begins to feel where they are? And I think probably tests the span and senses that he can reach them both. And it is at this moment in time that the whole story hinges and we pivot. Because for every person who is coming to the realization that they have failed in their life, that they have sinned, that they have done some things that there are consequences for, and they're understanding now, this is me. This is what I've got. This is what I've done. I can't go back and change it. I can't erase it. That guilt is present within me. That scar and scar tissue is there. I sense that I have done. How can I ever overcome failure? Samson shows us how. Samson tells us there's a way to experience grace. And I think we read it in verse 22. Just before we started. Here's what we read in verse 22. How be it the hair of his head began to grow again. After he was shaven. Now you say, hold on a second. You've taken time to tell us that the secret of his strength was not in the length of his hair. And thank God for it. His hair begins to grow again. I'm not saying that his hair began to grow and as it got longer, he got stronger and stronger. What I am saying is this. This is indicative of God giving Samson a second chance. He took the Nazarite vow, no strong drink, no unclean thing, and no razor to your head. Well, at this point, this guy's wrecked all of them. And, and now as he's standing there in the prison cell, the Bible tells us his hair began to grow again, meaning that there's an opportunity, there is a second chance being offered here. His hair begins to grow again, and it is now that we hear him pray in verse 28, those words, O Lord God, remember me, and strengthen me. For your honor and for your vindication and for my vindication and for the sake of my two eyes, I know that I am incredibly forgettable because of what I've done. I know that you could ignore me and you have every right to ignore me, but I am asking you to remember me now and indicated and wrapped up in those words is a penitent heart. It is a heart of confession before God. How do we know that? It mirrors the prayer of the thief on the cross next to Jesus when he said in Luke 23, 42, Lord, remember me. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Remember me. Sometimes we imagine that prayers of confession and repentance have to be verbose and flowery and long. Samson said, remember me. The thief on the cross, remember me. When David was confronted with his sin of Bathsheba by Nathan the prophet, he simply said, I have sinned against God. What God is looking for is a broken heart on the inside. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. God sees and weighs the spirits. We've already established that. And so when Samson says to God, remember me, he's not saying, and as soon as my hair grows full back as it was, I know that I'll have strength to push these pillars over. For the first time in his life, he is seeing right. Because for the first time in his life, he is seeing it's not about my hair. 
It's not about my mandate. God is the reason I've had strength all this time. Isn't it amazing that he had to lose his physical sight to begin to see as he should? And I think sometimes what we view as failure and the consequences of failure as being impossible to overcome are actually the very vehicle that enables the resiliency. Because when we've been stripped of everything and when we are confronted with the loss and we sense that pain and we feel that guilt and we know that remorse, we are now confronted with another decision where we do what we want to do and it's silence that. It's get rid of that or we do what God wants us to do and we confess our sins and we repent of our sins and we ask God to help restore us. After all, he is the redeemer. David, as he prays in the 23rd Psalm, says he restoreth my soul. He stands you back upright when you've been cast down, tipped upside down and can't get back up. How do I overcome failure? I would not say to you the way to overcome failure is to be really strong. In fact, what I would say is just the opposite. The way to overcome failure is to be really weak in the presence of God. That's what we hear from Samson. Remember me. I'm forgettable. Remember me. I know you could ignore me. Strengthen me one more time because I know for the first time in my life, it's not me, but it's you. Strengthen me. And the Bible tells us that he takes those two pillars and he asks, he asks, let me die with the Philistines. And when he pushes those pillars out, the entire building collapses and thousands upon thousands of people die and Samson as well. In fact, there's an interesting phrase, I think, that is wrapped up in the 30th verse. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. All of his life pales in comparison to what he just did at this temple. And his family comes and they get his body out from the ruins, the wreckage of that temple of the defeated Philistines. All the lords of the Philistines are there. And they take him back and they bury him. And what we see is a washed up, beaten down warrior who wasted his potential. But I do know this, and this stuns me every time. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the great chapter of faith. People who did incredible feats for God. We read this, and this is mind-boggling. Hebrews 11, verse 32 in the New Testament. And what shall I more say, the writer of Hebrews says? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith, what did they do through faith? Subdued kingdoms wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. And I think this is Samson's epitaph, this clause. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Listen, Samson out of weakness was made strong again. That is what the Bible tells us about him in the New Testament, in the hall of faith. He did what he did by faith. He believed in God and he slew more in his death than he ever did in his life. Juxtapose that against Jesus Christ, who in his death offers more life than than we can possibly imagine. Everlasting life through his death. How is it that out of weakness, Samson was made strong? Humility, repentance, and grace. 
How do you bounce back from unbelievable failure? When this season of life that we are about to enter into turns the light on and and at times shows us everything that's wrong and weak about us, how do we bounce back? I will tell you it's simply this, humility. Weakness before God and God's amazing grace. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.